All right. Well, um, for the rest of the month of November, uh, we are actually taking a little hiatus from the book of Isaiah, and we're going to do a refresher on our purpose statement and our values. And so this morning, we're going to actually consider our purpose or mission statement. You can see it right there on the front of the bulletin, uh, right in the upper right-hand corner. To reflect God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. Um, what does that mean? Well, that's what we're going to consider this morning. That, maybe that sounds too abstract. Maybe that doesn't seem like it connects enough with practical day-to-day life. But hopefully, before we're done, you'll see that whether we realize it or not, we are reflecting something all the time. Okay, Here, here's, this is actually bound up with who we are as creatures made by God. This is down at the base level of everything. So think about creation. God created everything and he created man and woman in his image. So we were made by God in his image. Why? To reflect his glory. We were supposed to, remember what, what God said? He, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Why? So that you'll fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. Like little lights, you know, just starting there in the Garden of Eden, and then they multiply, they're blessed, and they multiply, and that light just fills up the earth. Right? That's what was supposed to happen. We're all made this way. We're made to be moons to the sun. We're made to reflect the light of what we love. So every time you see a little reflector on the back of a car or marking somebody's driveway, that's like us. You see the moon. That's us. We don't have our own light, but we're made in a special way to both receive and then reflect the light of another. That's the way we're wired. That's the way we're made. We're supposed to do that. So what's it mean to be the moon to the sun of God's glory? What is God's glory? Well, God's glory is the full sum of his perfections, his excellencies, who he is, his manifold perfections. He is the best in every category. He is glorious. There's no one like him. He's perfect in love and power, compassion, justice, everything. So what better to reflect than him, right? So that's why we were created. That's what we're for. What happened at the fall? If we were like mirrors or reflectors, the fall was like smashing the mirror. Still a mirror, but when you smash a mirror, you get a distorted image, a distorted reflection. Or think of a carnival mirror how it's, it's misshapen and that distorts reality. It distorts the picture that it gives off. That's what happened in the fall. So rather than reflecting the glory of God, we actually reflect, reflect other things like the fangs of the evil one. Why do we bite and devour each other verbally? So this distorted image as a result of the fall, we still reflect something. And rather than light, there's darkness. 
We get turned in on ourselves rather than being open and up to God and therefore reflecting his light. So what did God do? Thankfully, he didn't just scrap us mirrors in the cosmic trash bin dump of the universe. He sends Jesus the perfect image of the invisible God, the light of the world, so that we could see God's glory most clearly and fully and finally. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the image of the invisible God. He came as the light of the world. Why? He came to die and to rise again so that we could be recreated. So that we could once again reflect the glory of the Lord. And as Christians, we are continually being conformed to the image of God's Son so that we can reflect God's glory. Jesus did it perfectly. We do it here and there, and we want to increasingly be a radiant, bright, clear, not distorted, not darkened, not stained reflection of the glory and grace of God. Okay, so this is why this is our purpose statement. I mean, I guess we could just go with 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, <laughs> whether you eat or drink, do it all the glory of God. That would be great. We could go with the Westminster Confession, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's great. But we want to make sure that we know that of all the treasures on earth that you can set your life on, God is the most worthy. Revelation 4 and 5. Worthy are you, Lord God. You made everything. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. He's worth everything, like a treasure hidden in the field. Remember? The kingdom of heaven is like a, heaven, uh, like a treasure hidden in a field. Man, in his joy, goes and sells everything that he has to buy that field. Okay, So we want to reflect God's infinite worth and we can only do that through Christ. <laughs> we don't have any hope of knowing God being recreated to reflect his glory unless it's by the power of the gospel. And when that happens, things happen. Like it ends up glorifying his name and it ends up being good for other people. So that's our purpose or mission statement. It's all over scripture, but we're going to see it very clearly in 1 Peter 2, 9 to 12. So that's the nutshell. And now let's see that we didn't just make up this idea out of the air. It's, it's biblical. Um, let's look at 1 Peter 2, 9 to 12. So if you're not there, you can turn uh, to page 1015 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the pew in front of you and follow along there. So I'll read those verses and then we'll dive right in. So Peter speaking to Christians he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the nations, the peoples, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right. Lord, I pray that you would please help us as we study your word. Would you please incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Drive away the distractions and 
make us attentive to what you want to say. I pray that we would want to hear what you have to say and we would be alert and awake and ready and receptive for it. Please open our eyes to see the wonderful things that are here in your word. Oftentimes we're dull and blind to them, Lord, and I pray that you would just open the eyes of our hearts and help us to see you in all of your glory and all of your grace. I pray that you would cause us to taste and see that you are good so that we want to magnify your worth and we want other people to do it with us. So come by your spirit and do your work in our hearts. Drive these truths deep down. Make them real. Make them stick. Lord, please, for the glory of your name and the good of the nations, please do it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're actually going to start in verse 10. We're going to start with mercy. Okay, so look first at verse 10. Peter writes, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we need to taste how sweet God's mercy is. We, we need to feel it in our bones. I hope that's what you're after when you encounter a truth in God's word, even if you're just reading it daily basis or whenever you open the Bible. You don't want to just have more information and factoids in your head. You want to experience the reality of those truths. That's why we need to read our Bibles on our knees, at least metaphorically, um, humbly recognizing, Lord, I I can understand these words can go through my mind, but I want them to sink down and, and really captivate my soul, my heart. So this verse has serious potential to help us do that, to taste and see and feel it in our bones. So if you don't have a reference Bible, you might not even realize where this verse comes from. You don't see any quotes, but these words actually come from the book of Hosea. You guys familiar with that book? I won't ask for a show of hands. So here's the story in kind of an updated version. Okay, so imagine a woman who was married to a man that was humble and honorable, hardworking, trustworthy, tender, wealthy, generous, not frivolous. He's responsible. He's a good steward. He's patient. He's kind. He's level-headed. He's self-controlled. He's strong. He's passionate. He's a poet. He's a lover. He's a warrior. He's an artist. He's a great communicator of emotions, um, genuine, he's sincere, he's a great listener, he's thoughtful, he's sacrificial, he's steady, he's long-suffering, he's durable, he's available, he's accessible, he's deep, he's intelligent, he's wise, he's wonderful. This husband delighted to provide for and care for and interact with and serve and lead and sacrifice for and forgive and listen to and speak to his bride. And this woman, married to this man, begins to toy with the social networking scene. She's a little bored. She had no reason to be. She starts flirting in the office, in other social environments, catches the eye of a few players who are willing to entertain a married woman. She would even use the money and the privileges that her faithful husband had provided her to purchase 
these guys' attention, to lure them in, to entertain and manipulate them into being her lovers. They were idiots. They were brash and arrogant. They never got, gave a thought to the consequences of the adul- uh, adultery. And so she ate forbidden fruit. The taste grew on her until she was willing and ready to give herself to just about anyone. I mean, fidelity is just so boring. Wise, steady, reliable, enduring, pure love, so boring. She hated the restrictions, the limitations, fidelity to one man, even if it was this wonderful, incomparable, worthy man. So he divorced her. Well, that was Israel in the days of the prophet Hosea. God himself was that faithful, perfect husband. And he was long-suffering, but he ultimately had to judge his people for their infidelity. Israel was a whore. It's a Bible word. The Bible uses shocking language to describe sin and infidelity. So God used Hosea, the prophet, as a living, inf- living illustration of that infidelity of Israel and its consequences. He told the prophet to go marry a prostitute and bear children by her. First was a son named Jezreel. Second, a daughter named Lo-Ruhama, meaning no mercy, or she has not received mercy. How about that, if your parents named you that? That's no fun. Third was a son named Lo-Ami, meaning not my people. So because of Israel's unfaithfulness, God divorced her, quote-unquote, judged, punished her. But in the same book, in amazing ways, he promises that he's going to woo her back. He's going to allure her and speak tenderly to her. He says that in that day, in the day that I come for you, you're going to call me my husband, and no longer will you say my Baal, because again, they were bowing down to, they're jumping in bed with another God. So actually, why don't you flip back there to Hosea chapter 2. So kind of hard to find, um, but it's actually on page 752. If you're using the Pew Bible, You can read the whole book later, but Hosea 2.17, picking up right where I just left off, for I will remove the names of the Baals, these false gods, from her mouth, they're bowing down to false gods, and they shall be remembered no more, look, verse 19, and I will betroth you to me forever, betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Whoa! Do you know what that euphemism is in the Bible? Adam knew his wife, and here comes Cain. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Look at verse 23. And I will sow for her, I will sow her for myself in the land, plant her in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. I'm going to reverse this thing. And I will, have, I will say to not my people, you are my people. So those children were, were a little picture, a living illustration of the judgment and its effects. And now God's going to do a new work of salvation. And when he does, I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So Peter uses this imagery to help his readers, help us 
recognize the nature of God's mercy to them, to us. So Israel was this unfaithful wife, rejecting her husband, getting in bed with worldly suitors. This is who we were before God wooed us. We were unfaithful to the God who made us and loved us. And it was ugly. I think that's part of the reason why this is one of the metaphors for sin in the Bible, because there's such a visceral reaction to infidelity, isn't there? You want to get the jealousy and the anger and the, like, no, up. So we need to taste the ugliness of our unfaithfulness if we're really going to taste the sweetness of, the, of his mercy. Peter knew this. I mean, he actually knew it by experience. He had been an arrogant, you know, ready, shoot, aim, bumbling turncoat. And Jesus had mercifully restored him. He begins this letter of 1 Peter, back to 1 Peter. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Magnify the Lord with me. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That is great mercy. Mercy changes everything. It changes who we are. So you were that unfaithful whore once you were not a people. But now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we have a completely different identity if we're in Christ. And it is marvelous. So look at who you are. Verse 9. If you are in Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We've got to savor this. Do you know this is true about us, about you, if you're in Christ? You're a chosen race. You are not ultimately, none of us are ultimately, most importantly, black or white, Asian or Indian, et cetera, et cetera. Even though race is important, and I think colorblindness is kind of a weird thing. Like, no, there's a wonderful diversity in God's kingdom, okay? But ultimately, as far as our identity is concerned, there are two races. The one running away from God and the one, by grace, walking with and to God. So you're a chosen race. If you're in Christ, you are chosen by God race. He caused us to be born again. <laughs> Just raised us from the dead spiritually. Chosen. He decided to do that. He brought us into his family, made us his sons and daughters so that we have an inheritance. And nobody's touching this inheritance. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So you're a chosen race. That's unity. There's oneness. You know, you can feel like for a variety of reasons that you're, you're, you're untethered or you don't have a home or you don't have your people. No, you've got a people. You have a people. You're God's people. We are a people. We belong really good news. This is really sweet. So, so these elect exiles, Peter calls them that right at the beginning of the letter. 
both Jew and Gentile, they needed to be reminded of who they are. Or most, more significantly, you could say, reminded of whose they are. And so do we. You, you're a chosen race. <laughs> and we are a royal priesthood. That's kind of weird, isn't it? But does that really move you emotionally right now? Well, actually, it should. Royal. We are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. We're covered by the blood of Christ. We actually have royal blood now in our veins. We're members of his family. We will reign with him. It's crazy. It's wonderful. And we're a royal priesthood. What does that mean? Well, we've got free and confident access to God. And we minister his presence to the world, just like the priests did on behalf of God to the people. We mediate grace and truth to others. So every time you share the gospel, you're acting like a priest, not in some weird way where, you know, you have to set up human mediators. What I mean, Jesus is the only mediator in the ultimate sense. People can go directly to God, but how are they going to hear? How are they going to know about this grace? Well, somebody's got to take it to them, and we can actually do that. We can, we can mediate God's grace and say, here, oh, I've tasted this. This is so good. You've got to try this. Royal priesthood. We are conduits of grace and truth, mercy to other people, and we're also a holy to God nation. We belong to him. We're set apart for special use. We're devoted to his purposes. That's who you are. Is that how we're living? Sometimes we need to realize, you know what? I need to become who I am. And, amazing, we are a people for God's own, you could say, treasured possession. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, 6. This is where this language comes from. Multiple references in Deuteronomy along these lines. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You belong to him. Set apart. The Lord your God has chosen you, chosen race, to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 7, 6. Do you believe that's how God views you? Treasured possession. You are his treasured possession. Or do you more often operate as if and feel like, ah, he just barely puts up with me? We are a people for his own possession. He wanted us. He chose us. He purchased us. And what he purchases, he brings all the way home. You can bank on that. Once we were not a people, we used to be spiritual adulteresses. We were existential whores. In fact, it's worse than that, actually. And this is in Hosea as well. You can go read it and, and see it. We were not <laughs> being paid for our favors. We were paying for giving ourselves to other gods, buying them with the very gifts that God, our maker and husband, had given us. He gives us all these gifts, and what we do, we use them to prostitute ourselves. But now, because of Jesus, the faithful husband that laid down his life for his bride, to purify her, to purify us, to purchase us out of that slavery, now we're God's people. We belong to him. We're his. He's betrothed 
us to himself. He calls us out of the darkness of our own depravity and slavery to that infidelity. He rescued us. He transferred us to his marvelous light. I mean, this is an excellent God, isn't it? (laughs) Anybody? Anybody? (laughs) This is an excellent God. So, but here's the point, like real practical here. If this isn't excellent to you, you're not going to proclaim the excellencies. If it's just like, oh man, just getting. So do you see how important our hearts are in this whole thing? Lord, please make this real to me. And I don't say that looking down my neck, like what's wrong with the rest of you? I'm saying I've got to fight my stupid cold heart because oftentimes the excellencies don't, I don't experience them as so excellent. And other things call my attention away and they're worthless compared to this infinitely worthy God. It's called fighting for your faith. So this is an excellent God. This is marvelous light. This is amazing mercy. And the more that we experience it as such, we will proclaim those excellencies. We've been brought into this marvelous light for a reason. Why you are who you are. Point three. You see it there at the end of verse nine. You are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So here are, again, the questions we need to ask ourselves. Is this marvelous to me? Do you know the excellencies of God? Do you you know them by experience? So if the mercy of God right now, the who you are, is not real and sweet, we're not going to have power to proclaim. We're going to be silent. We won't commend things that we don't cherish. Listen to uh, Richard Baxter. He lived a couple hundred years ago. He said, To speak of regeneration, of faith, that's new birth, of faith when a person has no spiritual understanding of these things is to talk of the sweetness of honey when we never tasted it or of the excellence of such a country which we were never in but know by maps only. If you know the truths of God, but by books, by authors only, and your own heart feels not the power of these things, you are but as the conduit that lets out wine or refreshing water to others, but you yourself taste not of it. Or like the hand that directs the passengers, but you yourself stand still. So you can see the call is taste, (laughs) eat, go visit the country (laughs) so that you you don't just know it by maps only. So I hope that if nothing else, we come out of here saying, Lord, I want to know this mercy by experience. And I've tasted it, but man, it's so easy for me to hunger and thirst after other things. So please tune my taste buds. Please own my heart. Um, reading a book right now with uh, Pastor Tyler on preaching by Tim Keller because I need to grow. Um, as a preacher, and, and uh, there's a lot of helpful things in there. One thing that he says, he says, um, I think he's talking about preaching to the heart. He said, talk, he's uh, referring to Jonathan Edwards, and he says, Edwards believed that at the root of every heart's affections is excellency, that which is appreciated and rested in for its own sake. Edwards defined a, no, a nominal Christian as one who finds Christ useful to get those things the heart 
finds excellent or beautiful. In other words, you use Jesus like a tool to get what you really want. That's a nominal Christian. Like a Sunday only, like a, you know, by profession but not by life. While a true Christian is one who finds Christ beautiful for who he is in himself. Have you ever interacted with a salesman who showed interest in something that you were interested in and it quickly became clear that, they were, that he was simply working the angles for the sake of the sale? You know what I'm talking about? The car salesman, the, you know, guy giving you the quote. How do you, how do you, how's that strike you? How's that hit you when that happens? Especially when it's like really obvious. You're like, oh, quit. That's oftentimes the way we relate to God. Use him as a means you know, we engage a little bit, enough to hopefully get what we want, really want. No, we need to just turn from that and say, you are my end. You're, you're not a means to some other greater end. Are you kidding me? There's nothing greater. It's infinite worth we're talking about here. So it's like Paul saying, I counted everything as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. He is my great and he's not a tool or a means to some other end. So how much is God worth to you? How much is the gospel worth? Only if God is our treasure, infinitely valuable, will we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Only if the gospel is our treasure, God is our treasure, will our life magnify the infinite worth, reflect the infinite worth of the one we worship. And then naturally, we will say to other people, magnify the Lord with me. <laughs> I mean, we all praise what we enjoy. We praise what we value. All you got to do is just stop and listen. Pretty soon, you hear what somebody really loves, what their life is set on. We all pro proclaim the excellencies of, th of things, food, restaurants, movies, television shows, So we're going to be telescopes, magnifying the worth of whatever we're set on. We, we've got to be telescopes magnifying the infinite worth of God's glory and grace in Christ. That's what David is doing in Psalm 34 that Tyler read. Magnify the Lord with me. He's delivered me. You've got to see this. I've got to tell you. Oh, I love it. And would you magnify the Lord with me? You'll never be disappointed if you trust in him. So one of the ways that we can do that, one of the ways, if I can change the metaphor, one of the ways we can set the telescope of our lives on God's glory is to tune our taste buds, to ask the Lord to tune our taste buds. I've kind of mentioned this a little bit already, but we need to taste the excellencies of God if we're going to proclaim them. They need to be real to us. So maybe that's why Peter opened up this chapter this way. Look back at 1 Peter 2.1. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, and then like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted what the Lord is good. In other words, that command to long for the pure spiritual milk of God's word, his grace, his mercy, will only make sense to people who have tasted 
that the Lord is good because they say, oh, man, I'm so stupid. I go after other things so often, but I've tasted. I want more. So I'm longing for more of that milk. Give me more. So is that how you open the Bible? Are you on the lookout for the excellencies of God? Do you view the Bible more like a treasure map than a road map? Sometimes we can be so horizontal, it's almost like, well, what should I do next? And you would just cut out God from the equation. It's not, Christianity is not just a list of things to do and not do. It's you get the greatest treasure of the universe. It's a treasure map. So we need to taste and see that the Lord is good. We've got to feed our faith. We can't give our hearts, our affections, our delights, our appetites to other things and expect to be ready to proclaim his excellencies. It's a heart issue. So who's got your heart? What has your heart? Again, listen to Keller in that same book. He quotes a couple people, but I'll just read it as one quote. The heart in the Bible is the center of a person's attention and commitment. Whatever we most treasure, cherish, value subtly but infallibly controls the whole person's direction and values. Whatever captures the heart's trust and and love also controls the feelings and behavior. What the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find valuable, and the will finds doable. What makes people into what they are is the order of their loves, what they love most, more, less, and least. Let me read one section again. Whatever captures the heart's trust and love also controls the feelings and behavior. What the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find valuable, and the will finds doable. Which is why I think Peter follows this by addressing our passions and desires, our hearts, in the next verse, verse 11, and he calls us to fierce fidelity. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, we're not home yet, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. If you've got poison in the well, in the, the source, the poison runs downstream into all the areas of your life. Or to change the metaphor, if we're mirrors to reflect the glory and grace of God, then whatever stains or distorts the glass will keep us from fulfilling our purpose. Okay, but to put it in the context of this marriage metaphor, Peter used Hosea on purpose. We are like sojourners and exiles. We're en route through the wilderness of this world to the promised land, which starts with a wedding feast. Right? So en route, we need to stay faithful to our betrothed. We need to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against our soul. They divide our hearts. And we've got to do so because we want to be faithful to Jesus. He laid down his life for his bride. So our home is with our husband. So we can't settle in here. If we do, rest stops turn into brothels. So think of this. This is kind of silly, but I think it gets the point across. Imagine a female college student, senior year. She's getting married on June 1st. College ends May Whatever, she's got a few weeks to get all the plans finalized. And so she's 
driving home cross country because she's a senior. She doesn't pack up the whole car, whatever. And she's, she's heading back to her wedding day. I mean, can you imagine if she starts flirting with the McDonald's like manager at the rest stop? She starts playing video games in the little arcade and like totally gets captivated and kind of scraps the plan. She just wants to hang out, looks for a hotel right near the rest stop. I mean, it's insane. But that's what idolatry is like, and that's why we need to abstain. We need to guard our hearts from things that would wage war against our souls being faithful to Jesus. So it's so easy to make a truce, an alliance even, with passions of the of the flesh and set up resistance to God. So is there anything like that in your heart right now? Anything coming to mind? Like anything you're reluctant to give up? Do you realize you're, you're two-timing? So if the Lord's bringing it to mind, convicting you, it's because he's wanting you back. He wants all of you. He wants your heart. He's a way better lover than anyone or anything else. So will you welcome this exhortation or are you going to let that passion that you won't let go of do violence to your soul? Are you going to feed or starve your sinful desires? Are you going to feed or starve your desires for God? That's a daily set of questions we ought to be asking. So, again, I'm using this metaphor for all it's worth. Imagine you saw some things in me. Let's, let's say... Um, out in the community, you come into the coffee shop and I'm in there, I don't see you come in, and you see me like getting way too friendly with one of the baristas. And you just saw me kind of toying with this kind of infidelity. What does that say of what I think of Beth? Now, maybe you actually would confront me and, and I, well, it's not that I don't love her. Well, from the outside, you just go, well, you're obviously blinded. So how about us with our idolatry, the, the things that wage war against our soul? Somebody says something to you or you see it, the Lord right now convicting you by his spirit. Well, it's not like I don't love the Lord. Well, the outside objective eyes that you just had toward me, you'd say, you're blinded. Or think about a man with a wandering eye. What does that reflect as far as the worth of his wife to him, her value? Does that honor her? No. Or a woman flirting with a guy at the office. Again, the reason I'm bringing this up is, don't you want your life to reflect God's infinite worth don't you want to be faithful to him? So if so, then fight the stuff that wages war against that fidelity. That's why fighting sin should be called fierce fidelity. And there's one more reason for all this in verse 12, so that our good ends up glorifying God. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I mean, this is just Peter echoing what Jesus said, right? You're the light of the world. City set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand so it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light 
shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So again, we set the telescope of our life on the excellencies of God and his marvelous blood-bought mercy, and we will reflect and radiate his light. The gospel changes how we live. It's through Christ that we reflect God's infinite worth. And it gives us power to live honorably among the nations, among our neighbors, so that they will see our God-exalting, Christ-reflecting conduct. And you know what? Some of them are going to be changed and turned, even if initially they want to slander us. How many of you were here last week and saw that video? If you didn't see it, I should post it on, on the blog or something like that so that you can read it or watch it. So International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church last Sunday played a video about Sato. This guy came into um, Hindu village to share the gospel with his neighbors. And one of the guys came out and said, we're Hindu here. And it was a dramatization, but it's based on a true story. It really happened. And this guy starts to berate him, berate him, and then he slaps him. And then a mob comes and literally beats this guy and leaves him for dead in a hole. But then that guy who started it all starts to get bothered by what he did, and he's talking to his wife, and he's, he's convicted. Why did I do this? And his wife says, you need to go check on him. Pulls him out of the hole, nurses him back to health. What does that guy do after he's nursed back to, back to health? He comes right back to the village. How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that unless your, your life is set on an infinitely worthy, marvelous mercy God. But what happened was that conduct undid that man. The Lord used it. And the very one who had slandered him ended up becoming a Christian and a church was planted in that village. It's a beautiful, powerful story. It really happened. And at the end, they showed footage from the actual church that was started by this guy, Sato. So what enemies does God want you to love? Your boss? Your neighbor? Maybe a family member? Who around you needs the light of the gospel? God has lifted up his face upon you and warmed your icy soul. He transferred you from darkness to light. Marvelous mercy. He, he rescued you. Who around you needs, needs you to shine the light of that mercy, the love and truth of the gospel on their lives? Let's set our souls like telescopes on the excellencies and mercy of God. We will taste and see that the Lord is good. We will be empowered then to proclaim his excellencies and to conduct ourselves in a way that reflects his worth, radiates his worth, and we will invite others to come and magnify the Lord with us for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. Let's pray and then we're going to sing together. Lord, again, in the, in the words of that old Welsh prayer, what we know not, would you please teach us? Not just teach our heads, but teach our hearts. Help us to really believe what's true. What we have not, would you please give us? Where we're empty, would you please fill us up? And 
what we are not, would you please make us? Please make us radiant reflections of your infinite worth for the glory of your great name and the good of all peoples. In Jesus' name, amen.